invite you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 3 this morning. We want to look at verses 9 through 20. All are guilty. Yeah, I'm talking about you and me, all of us. We're all guilty. And uh, Paul drives the uh, stake pretty deep here. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts. Help us to see what you want us to see. Uh, Thank you for the book you've given to us. Everything has a purpose. And so, Lord, um, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate teacher. Uh, May the word of God go forth with power this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Note on the overhead, uh, the theme of Romans is uh, the righteousness of God, uh, the gospel of God. And we have come down to the last section in uh, chapter 3 here related to uh, God's holiness and, and man's sinfulness. The book of Romans presents the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the entire Bible. After the prologue, the very first topic that Paul deals with is that of sin. And he does so to show that all are under the condemnation of sin. Paul systematically shows that the pagan is under the condemnation of sin. The moralist is also under the condemnation of sin. The religionist is also under the condemnation of sin. And so we could uh, break down this section that we've been studying like this, the whole world guilty before God, depraved pagans, hypocritical moralists, self-righteous religionists, and now his summary statement on the whole human race. Well, today we come to Paul's developed conclusion that emphasizes the total depravity of mankind and that all are under the condemnation of sin. He makes the point resolutely and emphatically as seen here in 3, 9 through 20. So uh, note uh, the outline as far as what we're studying today. The charge that all are under sin, and then a 14-point scriptural indictment, and then the verdict. Let's pick it up, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, in Romans 3, 1 and 2, Paul showed that the Jew very much had a privileged advantage in that to them were given the very oracles or the utterances of God. However, morally, they have been proven to be no better. Consistent with what he has already emphasized, Paul is emphasizing all are shown to be under sin. Well, this is the point that Paul now goes on to drive home with a 14-point indictment from the Old Testament Scriptures. Notice verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The ultimate argument for anything is it is written. Referring to the inspired Scriptures, the Word of God, thus saith the Lord. And Paul saves his it is written for his crowning argument that that decisively shows that all are under the condemnation of sin. Now, in verses 10 through 18, Paul quotes or summarizes at least six Old Testament passages that show the depravity of mankind. He paints an ugly picture, but one that is true and one that is necessary to know. We need to know the dark ugliness of our sin to appreciate the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a reason that God gave the law first, and then grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Uh, Not that there aren't shadows in the Old Testament, there are, but the main focus was the law. Now, in Romans 10, uh, 3 through 12, Paul 
references Psalm 14, 1 through 3 in making his points. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 is very close to Psalm 53, 1 through 3. And also there may be an echo of Ecclesiastes 7.20 in the mix as well. But note he begins with, There is none righteous, no, not one. There are no exceptions. The entire of humanity is not right before God. None are righteous, that is, none are right before God. It's applied to the whole of humanity, not just to the Jews, not just to the Gentiles, everyone. Note he's quoting, we believe, from Psalm 14. And note what we read there in Psalm 14, uh, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. So he's just people, all people. To see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Among the children of men, the whole of humanity, not a single one does good. Not one. Now, when we speak of total depravity, we do not mean that every person is as absolutely bad as they can be, but rather that through and through all are totally corrupted by sin. Now, someone has said if sin was the color of blue, that every one of us would be some shade of blue. In our natural state, we are under sin, meaning there's always room for deprovement. Uh, people are born in sin. And they grow in sinfulness. And depravity lends itself to this reality. In the book of Judges, we read that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17.6, also at the end of the book, 21.25. Note, they all did what was right in their own eyes. Not what was wrong. It's not like everybody did what was wrong in their own eyes. No, they were all doing what was right in their own eyes. But all this doing right in their own eyes produced one of the darkest eras in the history of Israel. 300 very dark years. The testimony of Scripture, as confirmed by history, is that there is none righteous. No, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousnesses, all the right things that we do, are like filthy rags. And the whole human race is implicated. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. People in their natural state don't get God. They don't understand their sinfulness. They don't understand God's holiness. They have no idea the dreadful condition they are even in. Left to our own reasoning, we are total fools who know nothing of God. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Doesn't make any sense. Nor can he know them. All of himself he can't know. Why? Because they are spiritually... You need the Holy Spirit to help you in this. Ephesians 4.18, Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. And again, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Note that. People on their own brilliance, they never figure out God. Uh, the, wisdom through, uh, the world through wisdom did not know God, so it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached as the world perceives it 
to save those who believe. No one ever figures out God. He has to reveal himself. What we know is what we've been told, what God has revealed to us. And God's plan is to save those who believe the message that he has revealed through the gospel. Notice he says, there is none who seeks after God. This verse right here should put all the seeker-friendly churches completely out of business. I mean, if you're in business to win seekers, you're done. Because there are no seekers. People see other people searching desperately for peace, relief from guilt, for meaning or purpose. And they say, oh, they're seeking for God. Maybe you've said that. No, sorry, they're not. They're seeking the benefits that only God can ultimately give, but they don't want God. Someone as well said, show the world the fruits of Christianity. You know, love, joy, and peace. Show the world the fruits of Christianity, and it will applaud. Show it Christianity, and it will oppose it vigorously. R.C. Sproul says, Man seeks the benefits of God while at the same time fleeing from God himself. <laughs> That's interesting. True. Uh, John MacArthur says, Man-made religions are demon-inspired efforts to escape from God, not to find him. They're not trying to find God. They're not seeking God. The word seek means a determined search. People don't all of a sudden think to themselves, I'm going to make a determined search for God. Now you say, well, I know people that say that. They are liars. They never do this. People aren't looking for God in the same way that a criminal is not looking for a policeman. Rather, they are hiding, not wanting to be found. God's the seeker. God always takes the initiative. Never man. It was God who came to Adam in the garden saying, Where are you? I mean, Adam didn't go running after God saying, Where are you? No, rather, he was hiding from God, not wanting to be found. It was God who took the initiative. There is none who seeks after God. It was Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. It wasn't a whole bunch of lost people trying to find God. God's always the seeker, the convictor, the initiator, the inviter. And as he does so, people are then responsible to respond. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I love this verse. Uh, Psalm 27, 8, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Jeremiah 23, uh, 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You say, well, what about this? God says, you'll find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Yes, if we seek God with all our heart, we will find him. But the point Paul is making is that this never happens apart from God's initiating it. We only seek him because he first seeks out after us. As John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. He always makes the first move. 
Without him doing this, we would never on our own seek after God. In our depravity, we want nothing to do with God. Aren't you so glad that in grace, he comes knocking on our door? We never come knocking on his door. He comes knocking on our door. Verse 12. And they call that grace. In grace, he comes to us. Verse 12. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The whole human race has turned aside from God. They've all morally derailed and gone off the track. John Stott, sin is the revolt of the self against God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is a self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Isaiah 53, 6, great memory verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All have turned aside. And this denotes volitional rebellion. And it applies to all. In total, we have together become unprofitable. Unprofitable means worthless or useless. You said, I was expecting a self-esteem message this morning. Well, you were expecting wrong. <laughs> you see, the world in their psychobabble is always talking about the need for self-esteem. What are they talking about? In the analysis of God, there is nothing to esteem about rebellious humanity. I mean, the whole has become unprofitable. I mean, that's a very humbling reality. Now, indeed, all are created in the image of God. And we have value because of God's creating us in his image. But what have we done with that? Well, we are serving the purpose. No, no, no. In our depravity, we have become unprofitable. The whole batch of humanity is unprofitable. The word unprofitable was used by the Greeks to refer to rotten fruit. Rotten is the idea. It refers to that which is utterly useless. Now I ask you, what can be done with rotten fruit? What do you do with rotten fruit? You know what you do with it? It's useless. It's worthless. So you throw it away. There's nothing to esteem in useless, unprofitable, and yet God, in His amazing grace, comes to save those that have become unprofitable. No wonder those who are truly saved can't make enough of the grace of God. No wonder we sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then Paul once again emphasizes, There is none who does good, no, not one. We have emphasized this so much in our church that uh, when you ask some, uh, how are you doing? They're reluctant to say good. I'm good. <laughs> now, it's one thing to say you are doing well or doing good. It's quite another thing to say, well, I'm morally in and of myself good. Uh, Paul is saying there is none who does good in that none does perfectly well all the time. None of us are good according to God's standards. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, said this to the rich young ruler. 
He said in uh, Matthew 19, 17, Why do you call me good? Good teacher? Why do you call me good, Jesus says. No one is good but one, and that is God. If you want to enter the life, keep the commandments. But I'm picking up on that where Jesus says, No one is good but one, that is God. The absolute standard of good is God himself. And only God is perfectly good. In terms of doing good, we all fail. There is none who does good, no, not one. We all come short of the glory of God's good standard. There is no exception other than the God-man himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, nine times in verses 9 through 12, Paul stresses the universality of sin. Notice, all under sin, none righteous, no, not one, none, under, none who understands, none who seeks after God, all turned aside, together become unprofitable, none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3, 9 through 12, emphasizes the depraved character of humanity in total. And there is no exception. Warren Wearsby, these verses indicate that the whole of man's inner being is controlled by sin. His mind, none who understands. His heart, none seeks after God. And his will, none who does good. Thus, the whole of human, human, the human race in our natural state is characterized by total depravity. In total, we are self-absorbed rebels, corrupted by sin through and through. Even the good that we do is stained by sin. Even the good that we do is tainted by selfism and is not motivated by God-honoring faith. Someone has said that we should put all the politicians into a sack and then start beating the sack. And it doesn't matter which one you hit because they're all guilty. Well, yeah, I, I see that. How about we back up a little bit? How about we put us all into the sack? And then someone start to beat the sack. It doesn't matter which one gets hit because we're all guilty. We are. We're all under the condemnation of sin. There is no exception. There is no holier than thou. Verses 10 through 12 describe the depraved character of humanity. Now, verses 13 and 14 describe depraved conversation, what comes out of our mouth. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Verse 13 quotes from Psalm 5.9 and Psalm 140, verse 3. Nothing is more foul than stench emanating from the corpse of an open grave. Martha protested the stone being removed from the tomb of her brother, saying, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. The throat is closely connected to the mouth. I mean, to look down into your throat, the doctor has to have you open your mouth. And what is figuratively figuratively presented here is moral putrid stench coming from the corruption that fuels the mouth. Paul here graphically portrays the conversation of depraved humanity by likening it to stench, the stench of disgusting corruption that emanates from an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. You know what people tend to do? They lie. 
First thing we ask people is, you think you're a good person? You think you're good enough to get to heaven? Have you ever told a lie? Very few people will say, I have never told a lie, except for the worst kind of liars. People tend to lie. Everyone has told a lie. You don't have to teach children to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth, but they come out liars. They're born liars. You say, not my kids. Yeah, you're lying too. Many people are pathological liars on one level or another, even if they call them little white lies. Now, some snakes are poisonous and some are not. Pictured here is a tongue-fang combination that is poisonous. People with their venomous words can strike with poison, deadly poison. They are dangerous. And combine that with deceit, and the situation is very depraved. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's full of it. Verse 14 is a quote from Psalm 10, verse 7. Cursing is the idea of derisive language that calls for the harm of someone. You know, like when people say, you can go straight to heaven. No, no. They say hell, don't they? I mean, it's cursing. Calling down harm on someone. Bitterness is hatred expressed in vile terms. James 3.8 says, No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's what the tongue is. It's full of deadly poison. The mouth reveals the decay of the heart. The mouth tells on the heart. In Matthew 12.34, Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he went on to say this. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. What's in the heart is brought out. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Wow. It's a lot to give an account for, especially if you're a talker. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, I think what comes out of your mouth pretty much tells the story on you. <laughs> it will tell the story before God ultimately. Want to know what's going on in the heart of a person? Just listen to them talk. They'll tell you. It'll be obvious. Sometimes when I hear people cursing and full of hate speech, I feel like saying, it's obvious that something rotten is going on in your heart. And when people use God's name in vain, you know, such as when they say, oh my God, sometimes I ask, and who is that? And they look at me like, what? I said, well, you brought it up. (laughs) I mean, who is your God? They don't have a clue what I'm talking about. The conversation of depraved humanity is putrid, deceitful, poisonous, full of cursing and bitterness. It isn't pretty. It's depraved. Verses 15 through 17 relate to depraved conduct. These verses are a takeoff from Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And his children share in his nature. There is a killer nature in there. The first recorded sin after the fall of mankind was a murder when Cain killed his brother Abel. I mean, we're no sooner out 
of the fall in Genesis 3, and we have a murder in Genesis 4. Fall, murder. John Phillips, sin leaped full grown into human experience. Man's first sin separated man from God, and his second sin separated man from man. Back in 1968, Will Durant wrote a book, The Lessons of History. He said that in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 years have seen no war. Hundreds of millions have died in war. But we don't need to look that far. You see, we have legalized murder in the womb in our country and in much of the world. In our country, since abortion has been legalized, the official record says that over 63 million children have been murdered in the womb. You know what? That's a lot of blood. Their feet are swift to shed blood. A sinfully deranged man goes off, kills a number of people, and the whole country is in shock. But millions killed in the womb cause no such stir. It's been said that the most dangerous place in the world is in the womb. Verse 16 continues, destruction and misery are in their ways. Depravity goes about spreading destruction and misery. Wherever it goes, the badness of people just keeps on hurting people for seemingly no good reason. I always think about this. Uh, why do people, uh, you know, plant viruses, uh, you know, on the Internet uh, where it comes into my computer? I mean, what did I ever do to you? <laughs> It's what depravity does. It goes about spreading malicious viruses. The Holocaust was Nazi Germany's deliberate murder of approximately 6 million Jews. I mean, the society seems so civilized. How could this happen? It was unbelievable what they did to the Jews. They beat, maimed, starved, gassed, tortured them in the most inhumane ways possible. They bailed human hair for commercial purposes. They flayed tattooed human flesh for lampshades. All of this was done by what was considered to be one of the most advanced, cultured, and enlightened nations in Europe. As the Jews became a nation in 1948, the cry went up, Never again! Never again! But then, October 7th, just a few weeks ago, once again... We see atrocities that are unthinkable. You say, that's those savages. Yeah, that's us. Apart from the grace of God, that's us. Fools that claim to be progressive say we're getting better and better. Really? What planet are you observing? Such people are blind to reality, blind to the truth of God's word, blind to the reality of human depravity. Crime is off the charts, out of control in so many of our nation's cities. A spirit of lawlessness that defines Antichrist is already at work, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. You know what Jesus said? He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be with the coming of the Son of Man. How were those days? You know, the days of Noah, just before the, the great judgment of the flood came. 
That's where we live. We live just before the time of the great worldwide judgment that God has said is coming. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be. What were those days like? Well, we don't have to wonder. We have a record. Genesis 6, 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6, 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. A standout characteristic, violence, destruction and misery are in their ways. You say, we've come so far since before the flood. No, no, no. The heart of man hasn't changed. The depravity of man hasn't changed. What defined the world in Noah's day was violence, and this defines the world just prior to the Lord's return. We are there. Have you seen the nightly news? If it bleeds, it leads, and it leads every night. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This defines depraved humanity. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. You know what? Depraved people have a hard time getting along. Have you noticed this? Goodness, even the saints. I mean, we still have the flesh, you know. Even the saints who still have the flesh struggle with this, right? To live above with saints we love, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's quite a different story, right? Yeah. In 1991, Rodney King, after a high-speed chase while driving intoxicated, was beaten by police officers in Los Angeles. Suddenly, riots and all kinds of ugly broke out all over the place, especially in L.A. Rodney made his way to the mic and said these famous words. Those living at that time will remember these words, right? Why can't we all just get along? Well, the answer to Mr. King's question is depravity. The way of peace they have not known. You say, we're all just a bunch of peace-loving folks. No, we're not. No, we're not. Here's, apart from the grace of God, here's what we are. Titus 3.3, we ourselves were also once foolish. This is where we were as well. Without the Lord, this is where we'd still be. Apart from the grace of God, there go I. No holier than thou here. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It's what depravity does. Depravity is all about fighting, fussing, and feuding. (laughs) That's what depravity does. You say it's depressing. Yeah, it can be. And that brings us to verse 18, which summarizes the underlying cause of it all. Here's what we have seen. Romans uh, 3, 10 through 18, we see character of depravity, verses 10 through 12. Uh, 13 and 14, depravity seen in our conversation. 15 and 17, in our conduct. And now we come to the the root cause of it all. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. This is a quote from Psalm 36, verse 1. This summarizes the core problem of depraved humanity. They have no fear of God. They have no fear of God is a way of saying they have no reverence for Him. They have no worshipful respect or awe for Him. Now, the Bible sometimes uses fear as a synonym for saving faith. It denotes the essential attitude involved in saving faith, which is to have a proper reverence 
and respect for God. Peter's testimony in Acts chapter 10, Peter opened his mouth and said, I, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Proverbs, the book of wisdom, begins by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7. And again, uh, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A right relationship with God starts there. To live with no fear of God is to live like his lordship authority doesn't matter. Like there's no accountability to him. When God revealed himself to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, they trembled and they were terrified. God made his presence known to them in this way so they would fear God and not sin. And by the way, those go together. A proper fear of God has a way of making you not want to sin. We read there in Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. You know, I love that line from Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and, and grace my fears relieved." There is a touch of terror in a proper fear of God. But in our day, the fear of God has been so watered down that in many cases, all holy reverence is removed. I mean, God's just a big grandfatherly buddy. Stephen Lawson says, Step into the average church these days and you will likely see that the services are designed more to remove the fear of God than to promote it. Can I say something? Amen. A proper fear of God involves a worshipful awe of His sovereign greatness and a dread of violating His holiness. No fear of God is perhaps the worst trait of depravity and, in effect, explains all the others. Now, Paul has presented 14 points of indictment from the Old Testament Scriptures. It serves to underscore the universal truth of total depravity. Here's a true story. Years ago, this is before the advent of cell phones, uh, a man was walking through a park in Scotland. He was carrying a small New Testament in a leather case. A group of young people saw him walking there, and they thought he was carrying a camera in that leather case. And so they asked him if if he wouldn't mind taking their picture. In response, he says, I already have it. Astonished, they wondered when and where he had taken it. He then proceeded to take out his New Testament and read to them Romans 3, 10 through 18. He then said, that is your picture. And he took the opportunity to witness to them about Christ. Paul, in verses 19 through 20, now brings to conclusion the main point he has been driving from 118 on. Verse 19. Now we know, we know, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Here's the purpose of the law. It has a mouth-shutting purpose. It leaves us defenseless with no answer. It shows that the whole world is guilty before God, having broken his holy moral standard. There is no exception, and there will be no rebuttal. 
the law here certainly corresponds to the law of Moses, but it's broader than that. Also accompanying the whole of the Old Testament as Paul quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah to make his points. It also intersects with the moral law written on the conscience of all people as noted in Romans 2.15. This verse, 319, shows that there is a universal moral law of God for which all are accountable and before which all are found guilty. The language is very clear that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. D.L. Moody said, The Jews said the law was not given in the promised land, which belonged to Israel, but in the wilderness because the law was for all nations. Well, there's a sense in which that is true in terms of God's moral law. I mean, this glory of God's standard, which all come short of. The law of God, in the sense of the Old Testament, was given to the Jews. And it most clearly shows the standard of God's moral law. And yet it intersects with the moral law written on the hearts of all people. And it finds all to be guilty of violating it. No one lives up to the light of God's law as revealed to them, whether in the conscience or in the scriptures. Again, Moody said, God being a perfect God had to give a perfect law. And the law was given not to save men, but to measure them. And that's the point. We all come up short. When measured up against the moral law of God, we all come short of the glory of God's holy standard. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul's, therefore, is a sense of because. Now, this is enlightening because in verse 20, he doesn't use the definite article, the in reference to law, which would denote a specific aspect of God's law. Rather, he leaves it general, referring to all all aspects of God's law, whether in reference to God's law as seen in scriptural revelation or whether in relation to God's law as written on the heart, on the conscience, as we saw in 2.15. By the deeds of any aspect of God's law, No flesh will be justified in God's sight. And the reason being is because no one keeps the law. We are all lawbreakers. And God doesn't grade on a curve. Keeping his law is an all or nothing proposition. You say, well, I'm a pretty good person. No, you have to be perfectly good. James is very clear. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. It's an all or nothing. You say, well, I I kept 600 of the 613 laws. No, you have to keep all 613 all the time, in thought, word, and deed. And no one can do this. The problem is not the law. The problem is us, as Paul will go on to explain. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, by virtue of what he is, man acts as he does. The law makes man aware that he is not what he ought to be. So the purpose of God's law serves to show us we are sinners. As Paul says, by the law is a knowledge of sin. Now the law doesn't show us how to be saved, not in terms of the law directly, 
It is a witness, as we will see next week. But really, the main function of the law is it shows us that we are lawbreakers, that we are sinners. The law is like a mirror. It shows us we are morally dirty, but it doesn't provide cleansing. Notice it doesn't say, by the law is a knowledge of salvation, but rather by the law is a knowledge of sin. The law shows us we are lost, but not how to be saved. Paul called the law a ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3.7, and a ministry of condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3.9. Paul, by way of referring to the gospel, spoke of it as the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. However, in presenting his most systematic presentation of the gospel in Romans, where he starts is with a thorough argument for all being under the condemnation of sin, with his closing argument being a 14-point indictment from the law of God. Thus, in his presentation of the knowledge of the truth in Romans, he starts with the knowledge of sin as revealed by the law. This is the starting place for sharing the gospel. This point has been tragically, in my mind, overlooked by many. And we have a whole generation of evangelicalism that has suffered tremendously because of it. Many are afraid to use the law because they're quite right. We are no longer under the law as a code to live by. Of course, nine of the Ten Commandments have been incorporated under the New Covenant that we live under. But uh, the law does serve a critical purpose. Even though we are now under the new covenant and we're not under the law, the law still serves a critical purpose. And that is to show people their sinfulness. That has not changed. As Paul said, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, 1 Timothy 1.8. And the lawful use of the law is to use it to show people they are sinners. That's what Paul just did in his 14-point indictment. The law shows us that we don't live up to God's holy standard. Again, Paul says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Shows us our need of a Savior, that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 2.24. Martin Lloyd-Jones Evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, and the eternal consequences of evil. Charles Spurgeon, you know that guy they call the Prince of Preachers? He said, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. It's amazing how many would argue this today. I know good men who would argue uh, contrary. Again, Spurgeon said, if men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners, and if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive until the law has slain him. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the great evangelical preachers 300 years ago in the time of the Puritans and 200 years ago in the time of Whitfield and others always engaged in what they called a preliminary law work. Here's what Paul's doing in his systematic presentation of the gospel. That's where he starts. At great length, preliminary law work, the knowledge of sin. Let me present to you the law standard. Guilty, 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 14 points. 
John Wesley said it's a, a radical thing. You ready for radical? Here's radical. You know that Wesley guy? Yeah, here's what he said. Before I preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, judgment. Preach 90% law and 10% grace. <laughs> are you kidding me? Wesley, what do you know about evangelism? Well, I think the guy was used pretty, pretty greatly of the Lord. You know, he might have been speaking a little bit, excuse the term, evangelistically. Maybe a little hyperbole. But the point is made. In Luke eleven fifty two, Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. The law is the key of knowledge. And by the law is the knowledge of sin. Take away this key, and there is no entryway into the truth of the gospel. This is the key that unlocks the door, showing people their need of a Savior. The rightful use of the law is the missing key in so much of evangelism today. People today are desperately trying to bury their feelings of guilt. We're coming up with all kinds of ways to try to help them with this. People want self-teachings, not convicting truths, but, you know, soft, warm things that make you feel comfortable. They don't want things that make them feel guilty. Are you kidding? And many contemporary preachers cater to this. You know, the heretic that has the largest church in America never likes to mention sin. He never calls people out as sinners. No. Don't talk about sin. They don't expose sin by the law. They never call people to repentance. It's all easy believism that has no teeth and therefore very few genuine converts. George Whitfield said back in the 1700s, another famous evangelist, that is the reason we have so many mushroom converts. That is, converts that spring up out of nowhere and then disappear. Because their stony ground is not plowed up, they have not got a conviction of the law. This is the missing key. You know, Ray Comfort has really championed this. Uh, He wrote a book called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And in this, he brings this out. The key that's been lost is the convicting power of the law. And before people can appreciate the good news of the gospel, we have to see, bring them the law, which shows them their sinful condition, their depravity. The law drives us to grace. And this, this is the order. 1,500 years of law, to make the point. And then grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. This is always the order. We're not saved by the law, but we are convicted by it. And the law shows us our sin, pointing the way to Christ as our Savior. One day, the famous evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, had the opportunity to preach at a large prison in New York. One of the guards there invited him to do so. And from where they had him preach at the end of a large, uh, uh, at the end of the, uh, where the prison, you know, there was, on the other side, there was all kinds of uh, prisoners, And so he preached there, but he couldn't see a single prisoner as he preached. He preached his heart out. Afterwards, he was allowed to go around and and through the bars, uh, introduce himself personally to the inmates. And one after another, they 
all seemed to declare their innocence. Moody said, I began to be discouraged. But then he came to the cell of a man who had his elbows on his knees, and he was just sobbing. And Moody said, my friend, what is the trouble? He looked at Moody in despair and he said, my sins are more than I can bear. And Moody blurted out, thank God for that. Yeah. You know, people have to come to where they see their sin before they see their need of a Savior. Yes, the gospel is good news, which is all about Jesus. But in order to appreciate it, one must first know the bad news of sin, which is all about us. The knowledge of the truth starts with the knowledge of sin as revealed by the law. That's where Paul starts, 14-point indictment, all from the law. The law shows us our sinfulness. The gospel of grace comes in sweet relief to all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Well, have you seen the awfulness of your sinful self? Then look to Jesus, who is the wonderful Savior of all those who will believe on Him as Savior and Lord. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.